That's because the oppression of the patriarchy is timeless and unrelenting. And the rent prices are still really high. Greetings and salutations and welcome to Hacker Slash. If you're joining us again, welcome back. You name a place and I've been there. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the party. We are a horror movie review podcast dedicated to telling you whether a movie is a hack, a total joke, a waste of time, or a slash. Totally killer. Pun intended. We believe horror is for everyone, and as such, we're rating these movies with the perspective we've gained from our varying walks of life and the flavors of fear we fancy most. My name is Chris. I'm your friendly neighborhood slasher enthusiast. This week, I'm joined by the superfly space guy, Mac. Hola, muchachos. And the cowardly creeper, Ryan. Hiya. This week, we're commemorating the 54th anniversary of a film that has been historically considered to be terrifying. Before we get down to business, though, we have some follow-up. Our follow-up this week is for The Descent. Unsurprisingly, it was a resounding slash, 97% slash among our listeners. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. It got a lot of love, but I know that it was pretty divisive when we got down into the Juno of it all. It's very true. There was a lot to say about Juno. So we have a couple of comments, one from Ashley, one of our patrons. And she says, I've been waiting for this episode as this is the first time I've watched a movie specifically for the podcast. I never saw this movie when it first came out. And as the years went on, never really had any interest. But then I I did finally watch it from the moment I got my first shock, the car moment. I was all in. I enjoyed it so much. I had to immediately jump into the sequel the same night. I feel for the main character and I would have followed her anywhere even if I usually hate creature feature type movies. The real question is, which one was your main character? (laughs) Very true. Open to interpretation, I'd say. And then Tony over on Discord said, Hey, Hacker Slash, Lila and I watched The Descent together for the pod. I was afraid that she would think it was a slow burn and hack it. When we talked about the movie during the credits, she was talking about these ladies the same way she spoke about the sorority girls in the 1974 version of Black Christmas. I mean, she spoke deep about Sarah's loss, about Beth knowing, and for how long? Like, did she only find out the day of the accident? And I can say Lila is for sure not hashtagging justice for Juno. Lai and I watched the proper version of this movie, the UK Canadian version. Therefore, there's no obligation to watch a cash grab sequel with lots of gore and a dark ending. Lila and I both give The Descent a slash. Okay, Lila, you are growing up to have fantastic opinions. I still defend Juno and would die for her. Not literally. It would suck to have Juno as a friend, but I do believe she deserved better. Well, we'll see if this week's movie fares as strongly as The Descent did, because this week we're exploring a film that's made its mark as a faithful adaptation of a 1967 novel. The story follows a young woman's experience as she not only moves into a new home, but also celebrates a pregnancy with her husband, until she begins to suspect nefarious intentions from everyone around her. This week, for the first time on the podcast, we're talking about Rosemary's Baby. Now, who's seen this one before? I have seen this before, um, but I've also seen the end scene on YouTube probably about 200 times. That's a lot for this end scene. How far back into the end are we talking? We're talking about the most prominent scene at the end of the movie, the one that's probably pretty memorable. And I've seen it, you know, you've seen it like featured in all these crazy horror movie endings or movies about cults or satanists or whatever it's just like i've come across it so many different times that is so specific well i mean you know i haven't seen this 
Obviously, I've heard of it, but that's about it. I just know that something called Rosemary's Baby exists. I've seen this one before, and we've briefly discussed it when we watched the horror anthology XX, which features a story that is kind of like a what if Rosemary's Baby continued, and we see what would have played out after this movie, uh, perhaps even years down the line. Now, it's something, though, that I realize I haven't perhaps seen as an adult. I thought I did. But as I experienced this, I was really thinking back to, I don't know that I've ever watched this with the full wherewithal that I have now. I feel like I only watched this when I was a kid. And so even going into it, really, like being a little fuzzy on the memory of when I last watched it, I expected this, A, to not only be a slow burn, but B, be a little bit difficult to get through, not because of any particular feelings I had about the movie itself, but because when I saw this, it was pre-discovering what there is to know about Roman Polanski. Now, we won't discuss a lot of that, I imagine, here tonight. I will include some links in the show notes if you'd like to educate yourself or read up on that. But when I saw this movie for the first time, the only thing I knew about Roman Polanski is that his wife was Sharon Tate and she was murdered in the Manson family murders. That was all there was to know. So to experience this, again, with context and then the context of just living life as a woman. It was an interesting ride, but what were you expecting? You know, there are some things in this world that I don't know nearly enough about. And I know it seems obvious because every week I say I've never seen this movie, but Roman Polanski is one of those things that I've just kind of avoided his entire lexicon, I think. I know he exists and I know that uh, he's not one of our great heroes in the world. So fortunately, I wasn't influenced by that at all. But with that being said, I didn't know what to expect at all with Rosemary's Baby. I mean, once once you start getting into it, you kind of get an idea. It's not like the most surprising storyline It's from start to finish. But I will say this could have been anything when I started watching it. Expectation-wise, I just thought about a movie from the 60s. Like I knew what was going to happen, but I figured it was going to have that kind of pace. I know you mentioned slow, slow burn, but I also think it's kind of more of a slow build that we get. So two hours and 15 minutes seems crazy enough these days. But when you think about like two hour, 15 minute movie from 1960s, you know, you're going to be in it for, for a bit of a ride, whether eventful or otherwise. So I had kind of put it off for a few days when I was going to watch it because I just knew that like this was going to take some time, not necessarily effort or set to sit there and watch it, but I knew that it was going to take a little bit of investment um, to, to really make it, make it through. I can understand that, especially with the runtime of this movie, right? This movie is two hours and 17 minutes, and it's not only an investment of time, but really a, an, an investment of energy and an investment of emotion. Again, as a younger person watching this, I thought, okay, this is really spooky, or this is uh, very you know, culty. We think about just what was happening in America during this time. Obviously, this is a, a point where we have big city life in the late 60s. We think about the transformation of America during this time. This is a point where we have Tom Savini serving in the, in the Vietnam War. And we're at this point in cinema where horror is a reflection of so many different beliefs and ideologies. And it's like, this is the worst thing that we could possibly imagine. What I did not know was that this was based on a novel. I never knew that. I thought this was a wholly original film. And I've always kind of classified this in my mind in terms of like the ranking of things with being in the exorcist territory. And as, while I was watching this, I found myself way more entertained watching this than The Exorcist. Now, 
I think I've shared even in the Exorcist episode or perhaps in episodes past where I personally feel that I lack the fundamental spirituality required to make those films terrifying. And I respect that they are for so many people. And it's something that like spooky supernatural films or, you know, things associated with the devil or things of this nature, right? Like things that you would typically expect, like this is supposed to be scary. It just doesn't do it for me. But I found that this movie doesn't rely on things like that. Like a lot of what's horrific about this movie is stuff that's still prevalent today. And a lot of it is just the treatment of other people with a really sinister undercurrent. Yeah. I mean, if this movie was only a movie about gaslighting, domineering rapists, it would be just as captivating. I think it's just it's pretty effective at making you grind your teeth for two hours. Yeah. I mean, I definitely felt this runtime. It is long and it is a journey. It's not a fast journey. It's a slow and steady one. I think my biggest feeling through this was super chill, which is not really probably what what people are going for with horror. But when I think about this versus like what it feels like to watch like the birds or even something like Night of Living Dead, like kind of in the same, you know, in the same decade, at least birds was a little bit before, but it just this movie doesn't feel as dated as that. It it feels better, which I'm thankful for because I was fully prepared to be like, God, another like 60s, hard to listen to, hard to watch, hard to deal with. Like, I just wasn't really in for it. Crazy dialogue. I, I just wasn't, I didn't have very high expectations for anything coming out of the 60s, you know, but this feels a lot better than some of those other things. That was honestly something that surprised me was, I don't know if it's the plot or just like the characters that we get and the relationships they have, but it definitely seems timeless. The fact that it's set in 66 makes sense for the story. Absolutely. But I also think you could pull this out and set it in 1996 and it would work just as equally. But I think watching it, however many years later, the story, the struggles, the the crisis, the many crises, honestly, all work no matter the decade. Obviously, we would have like you know, cell phones and stuff. It was set in modern days, but the stuff that's happening to the, to our main character and stuff that's happening between characters, I think is completely applicable no matter the year. Oh, I totally agree. I feel like it feels so familiar just as like a general plot line, the characters, the relationships and, and how things go. It feels like this movie's been remade four, four or five times. And I don't think that it has, but it, there's so many things that you can draw from it that this doesn't feel like it's 50 years old necessarily. That's because the oppression of the patriarchy is timeless and unrelenting. And the rent prices are still really high. I think that's the beauty of having a timeless story. And also what is disappointing about this story, not actually about the story. This isn't a knock at the movie. It's not a knock at the story. I think what is disappointing is just how damn relatable it still is. And I hate that. I really hate that. It's something that made my skin crawl while I was watching this movie. One could watch this and think, well, the way that that Rosemary is treated is not exactly what happens today. No, and you're right, right? Obviously, there are differences in how we move through the world now. But there's this particular brand of imposition and gaslighting and uh, discrediting one another that still persists and just leaves a nasty damn taste in your mouth. And it's something that made for a really 
enriching experience watching this. One of the things that other that really, really surprised me, despite how you know original this movie feels, despite how separate this movie feels from so many others or from its time, is that I did not think about Roman Polanski when I was watching this movie. And I think that's a mark of success for everybody else involved. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. You know, there's so many of these old movies with directors that have such a bad reputation. And then that kind of paints a film over the movie in a way. And I don't think this this one does. Thankfully, because the performances we get are strong enough to lift us away from the evil that the director committed and then escaped from. With that being said, I mean... For me, this is a psycho thriller. I don't know how it's classified, and I don't even know when people started calling things psycho thrillers, but in that frame, it's not scary. You know, that's not what psycho thrillers are for. They're really just to like creep you out, but not to scare you. I think there was maybe one attempt at like a jump scare in this movie, and it certainly didn't do anything. It is tough because the stuff that made people afraid back then does not really scare us these days. I mean, that's probably a good thing. But it it does lose its effectiveness as horror, I think, until you reach a few points throughout the movie. And there's a few points that are absolutely, like you mentioned, Chris, completely relatable, quite unfortunately, still these days. And those moments are absolute horror. But like the rest of the movie doesn't play out like a like a jump scare blockbuster kind of situation here. There's moments that are really deep and that should like just make you petrified. It's unsettling is really what it is. And it reminds me of this thought. Of uh, let's say you know someone is cutting jokes with you and you're laughing along, or let's say like a stand-up comedian even, and you're laughing along and they're making jokes at everybody's expense, and then they start making jokes at your expense, but then it kind of stops feeling like a joke. It's more like they're just snapping out of comedy and talking about how much you suck or are horrible as a person. And obviously, I have nothing against stand-up comedians. It's almost like you know, thinking about horror and thinking about some of the escape that a lot of these movies provide. They think back to a time or really look back to, wow, wouldn't it be great if this was the most you could be afraid of? What if I, that the worst thing I could imagine was a fucking werewolf in a porn shop? But instead, what's happening is, as a society, the real horrors of humanity are upon us and it's washing over us. So the werewolf movies are suddenly real chill. Sometimes a lot of other types of movies are real chill. But then you get to this movie, depending on the day you watch it, depending on the news that you read, it hits you very differently or makes you consider things from different perspectives. And I think that is the real horror of this movie. It's because it's this really unrelenting, serious horror. Obviously, goes in a direction. It's very famously associated with this movie. But I would consider that like a good 10% of the real horror that's like really baked in and every fiber of this movie's being. The real horror is anytime they start diagnosing things and using the word hysteria. (laughs) Or the crazies. Yeah, the crazies. The pre and post crazies. Gotta love it. So like I said, I feel like this movie has a lot of details that feel like I've seen them and stuff since. I'm kind of running on an assumption that this was quite original at its time because I've never seen anything from its time period quite like this, even though it feels very familiar now. I feel the same way. It, I think the effect that it had on people was probably very singular. I think there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there, a lot of media that uses this as a basis 
and tries to get the same feeling of the movie, especially when you're thinking about, am I crazy? Am I not? Is the character crazy? Are they not? I think a lot of, a lot of films, a lot of TV tries to like get that same feeling you get in this movie. If you've seen it before, it, it hits obviously very different, but. I, I think of it as, as still feeling very original. I think having seen so much other stuff that like seems like it, it still is so distinct. I think it's interesting too, though, because Satanic Panic is like such a later thing, even though it's so important in the story. But I mean, you know, we're talking a couple of decades before it became a big part of our existence. That is an interesting call out, particularly because you think about like this really popping off in the 80s. You know, we talked about like House of the Devil. We talked about a number of 80s films that really center around that. But I think what's really cool is this movie's approach to that. And really what it does is it like challenges what was considered to be wholesome. You know, we think about the Hayes Code that we've talked about in the previous Pride episode a couple of years ago. And we think about like what fits in the box of what we deem to be acceptable or comfortable or safe. And then what is outside that box that is for the Hayes Code forbidden and you cannot share, you cannot put on screen and then it requires subtext and, and different antics or different tactics by the storytellers to really convey certain things and certain intentions. But this movie to do this at this point does feel fresh. It does feel original, but it also, again, surprisingly gets that from a novel. And I think to adapt that that quickly from a novel so faithfully. I know that a lot of what you know has been said is that Roman Polanski didn't know that he had the authority to not do what was in the book. It's wild to me to see a such a faithful adaptation by all accounts, but then be for it to be such a timeless success without attempting to really be remade. And that probably gives the the, the novel's writer way more credit, you know? Think, thinking about the fact that if it was faithful and it was great, that means the novel was probably also pretty great. You can determine whether or not it's great. We'll talk about that between the three of us here. But I, I think the ending was great. I think the ending is very memorable. I think it is featured in a ton of different, you know, video hit lists for a reason. I think making it all the way through, you get this massive buildup and this final release here at the end, at the end of the movie. And it's just, it can be cathartic, but it can also be even more disturbing than the rest of the film in, in ways. But I, I just, even if you forget the rest of the movie, I think you're going to get that, that one facial expression and that's going to be in your brain forever. Okay. I think that one facial expression was a moment and it's something that I'm glad will live in the infamy of photography everywhere. You'll find it in your Google images. But for me, the ending was almost the weakest part, not necessarily that it was atrocious or terrible i just think the suspense and uneasiness of the whole movie lost its way there at the end and i think the events on paper make sense this is in no way to discredit the talent that was in this moment right but it's the fact that there are a few lines of dialogue that made me laugh but then just where it chooses to end it just didn't sit quite right for me and feel like Yes, this two hour and 17 minutes felt like this is exactly what I need to spend to arrive at this moment in time and be satisfied in this story. You know, I have to agree. I think this movie is a really slow burn. Not that it's boring, but it's a slow burn and it's long and it takes a long time to get to the end. And then by the time you get there, you, you kind of already know what's going on. There's not really a lot of secrets behind it anymore. And I, I'm not saying that I dislike the ending. I like the ending. I felt a little bit like I needed something significant and special like to happen at the end. 
There's a lot of ambiguity at the end on purpose, and I think modern audiences probably need a lack of that. It's not even that. It's not like I needed more of an explanation. I needed more of like a climactic point, because I think the climactic point was already revealed before it was revealed, if that makes sense. Like, we already knew what was happening. So when we finally get there, like, I was just like, okay, all right. I need a little bit of, a little more chaos. I need things to get a little wild in the end. There is a detail, I think, from the books that would have changed the movie drastically had they been able to include it and we can talk about it obviously after the uh after the spoiler break i mostly like needed to see like an eye you know like maybe that would have really done it it's just it just missed a little something no ren i completely agree with you i feel like this movie was missing a little bit of something at the end it feels like if this was a fire that was starting to build slowly as in a slow burn, it's almost as if when it reaches its opportunity to really just flash and become a roaring flame, it instead just slowly dies and fizzles out. Like you just didn't tend it well enough. Yeah, like you you toasted a marshmallow and then the fire went out. And like that's that's it. It wasn't exciting. You didn't you didn't have much there. It just it did its job. You made you made a fire and then it burned out. But we'll see how this unease about the ending translates into our actual ratings. But before we get there, how many people died in this film? We get a whopping two deaths in this movie. And is that being generous? Well, uh, it's being pretty generous. I mean, you could say one of them counts, even though it's unseen. And what about the animal report? The animal report this week is all good to go. Nothing to be worried about. In the 60s, they were too afraid to even imply that animals were getting hurt in these movies. Unless you're Alfred Hitchcock throwing live birds at Tibby Hedren. Yeah, it wasn't true. It's just what I'd like to think. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get into our rating then. Rosemary's Baby from 1968. Was it a hacker slash? So I'm going to give this movie a gentle little slash. The reason it's like a gentle slash is because everything from the 60s so far has been such a hack that this is this is a standout one for me. It doesn't feel as aged as most other things that we've seen from this era. And I I really did enjoy it. Um I think they did a good job at the beginning making me care about the characters and really enjoying this couple. So as things go, I I was wondering what was going on and there's a little bit of like over the topness that comes with all of the acting from the 60s. I don't know why things were that way. Maybe humans were just that way, but it's all, you know, a, a little bit of caricature here and there, a little bit of chaos, you know, a little bit of stretching the stories and stuff, but generally it's pretty good and you know, it does enough to keep you in even for this really long runtime that I was actually quite interested. Again, the ending was like not my favorite thing, but I had been on enough of a journey that I just I just went with it. So I think this is a slash because I didn't hate it. I wouldn't say I'm like super soaked on it, but I'm not mad that I watched it. And now I feel thankful that I've seen something that everyone else considers a classic. I'm happy you've seen it. I consider it a classic. I think it's iconic. I think it's also a slash. It is a bit of a slow burn, but I'm okay with that in, in most cases. I did put it off because I was worried about the time it was going to take to watch it, but I think it's worth it in the end. I think while you're watching it, it is captivating. I think it's interesting to watch. Mia Farrow, honestly, is the biggest reason why you should watch this movie. The acting, the fits, the hair, everything. One of the best performances I think you would get here because it's somebody who's just so perfect for playing 
a character who seems so nice and so gentle and so innocent being trapped by all the people around her who are just truly evil and doing evil things to her. So, yeah, I mean, I think you get an amazing performance. I think the set is pretty gorgeous as well. It's just everything kind of works visually on screen to keep you watching. Even in the moments that are a little slow, I think you're going to you're gonna get to points where you're like, I just, I can't wait to see what happens next. All the way until the very end. I know you weren't really satisfied with the ending, but I think, again, it's Mia Farrow that sells it. I think a facial expression is what makes the ending of this movie. And it's a slash. Well, look, I wasn't completely sold on the ending, but it's still a slash for me. This is a movie that does a few things particularly well. One, it drops you into the dynamics of these characters and really hooks you in with really uh, charismatic, relatable people. And then you watch this slow progression of drifting apart. And you can feel this shift of examining the people around you and questioning their intentions and wonder if you truly know them. And it's one of those movies that really walks this fine line of drawing things out over a long period of time, but also making it feel like it was worth the wait. And the way this movie progresses through time with casual lines or subtle markers in the background or certain festivities, I loved being able to get through this pregnancy with Rosemary. It feels like this is all of our baby, right? This is a journey. We're all coming out of the other side of it together. But the best thing that it could possibly do is very clearly depict the importance of bodily autonomy and and control regardless of what the circumstance is regardless of any of that and it's one of those movies that really points out hey this is someone who is not being allowed to make decisions for themselves where are we now in time and i'm so glad that things have changed the way that they have but a lot of the subtle microaggressions some of the dialogue in this movie reminds you that they're so far left to go but it's the fact that this movie is so well preserved, not just as a product of its time, but really a product of our society that makes this a timeless classic, as disheartening as it is to even say that. But for that, it's a slash. Look at us, slashing classics with our baby. And with that, Rosemary's Baby has earned a universal slash. Now, you can find this movie streaming in a few different places, including Epics and Paramount+. Plus. But check it out. Then join us in the second half so we can unpack all these details together. We'll see you in a bit. You want a child, but you don't want to raise it in a world with love and happiness. Conventional sperm donors can be expensive and time-consuming. You have to go through all of these medical screenings and interviews, and sometimes you don't even get what you asked for. Here at Satan Surrogates, we will never pass you from doctor to doctor, donor to donor, only to turn you down before you've ever been placed for surrogacy. What kind of person do you think would be good enough to father your child? Someone who is patient, kind, and has a lot of love to give? Or someone who is selfish, cruel, and will probably end up raising your child the same way. Not only will you get to choose from the best sperm donor in the underworld, but your child will also know that they are special because they were born of Satan himself. Come to Satan's surrogates. We will pair you up with the most evil sperm donor ever, Satan. Not only is he wickedly handsome if I say so myself, but his sperm is guaranteed to produce demon offspring. Plus, our affordable rates make starting your family more affordable than ever before.
Welcome back, folks. You're now entering the spoiler zone for Rosemary's Baby from 1968, which has shockingly earned a universal slash. Now, we have a lot to get to here, but before we get into the specifics of our ratings, we have the matter of gore to attend to, allegedly. Mac, what's the gore score for this movie? I'm glad you used the word allegedly because it is pretty darn low. I think the most gore that we get is the hint that there might be blood involved when somebody hits the concrete. I mean, we see some blood. There's, it's like a, it's a pretty gory face, I feel like. It's kind of like when they say LaCroix has flavor. Like, look, I love LaCroix, but you know, it's like this can of seltzer was near pomegranate. I would argue this had a little bit more gore than you might expect for this. That specific kill. I mean, it could have just been a body on the floor. There was at least blood. It was at least like some some hint towards misshapenness. You hear that? That's the sound of desperation. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm not trying to say this was a gory movie, but there was blood. Okay. There was at least some ketchup, you know, spread over someone's face. There was there was some definitely some bright red blood. There was also some scratch marks that we got later on. I think the goriest part is probably when we see Satan, who is slightly furry for some reason, assaulting the main character. He is oddly like a, a mix between leprechaun and a bear wolf. Like his hands had the leprechaun like kind of creepiness. Like it was like a little wrinkly furry thing, which was weird. Let me tell you what I could not unsee when I was watching this. You both have Netflix, maybe, perhaps. Perhaps you've visited a cartoon by the name of Big Mouth. Oh, my God. Perhaps you know that there's a hormone monster. I do. I'm not saying he looks exactly like the hormone monster. But what I am saying is I got hormone monster vibes in the worst way. He doesn't not look like the hormone monster. And that is truly something I didn't need to think about tonight. I'm not going to lie. I didn't need that. Please don't look this up. Oh, it's creepy and gross. There will be a link in the show notes to both Big Mouth and Human Resources. Okay, so we we do get a pretty horrific scene with Satan. And we do get some scratch marks. And obviously, there's some fake blood. But I think one of the best parts... It's not even correlated is going to be just like the withering away that we get makeup wise. We get the dark eyes. We get the just like the whiteness, the extra whiteness to the skin. And I think that went a long way to making this character seem really emaciated. Oh, yeah. But in the end, she didn't die. We did have a couple of deaths. Which one is your favorite? There's only two to choose from. Man, I really love that death of Hutch by coma over a series of months that we didn't know it were happening. Uh, and it was completely off screen. That was such an incredible kill. It was riveting. Okay, but he did come through at the, at the end like a real MVP to get her that book just in time. We love some witchcraft from beyond the grave. Oh, yes. Pre-grave. Mine is actually the inverse of that. And it is the death we get that is spoken about at the beginning of the movie, before Terrier ever falls out of the window, before Hutch ever dies from his coma. And you get this detail about the fact that that woman was really prominent. She was well-connected. Obviously, her neighbors were fond of her. But then we see this piece of paper in her apartment that says, I can no longer associate myself. And then you realize later, once Hutch falls into a coma, and dies. This wasn't merely just one of their dear friends passing away, but was rather a plot. You kind of get that, obviously, from seeing that piece of paper. They wouldn't show you that for any other reason. But the confirmation and the link there, I loved it more in retrospect. Chris, you have a great point. I'm going to speak a little bit more about that later. 
because there is a lot about the people who die and are related to these people that we don't really get any of. With that being said, we need to just like all agree here at the same time that Mia Farrow is the best visual element of this movie. It's actually in my notes. It says Mia Farrow's wardrobe, hair, and makeup. Specifically when she comes home and is told she looks horrible, she looks amazing, okay? I wish I could cut my hair and look like this. Are you kidding me? And how dare every person say how bad she looks? Y'all are all hateful. That was Vidal Sassoon, honey. Okay? (laughs) How dare you? I will say, obviously, she did look like she was dying quite a bit. That was really the point. She looked good when she wasn't completely white. But man, they did good with the, the effects. It wasn't over the top. It was very simple. And every once in a while, you just be like, man, she is so pale, so skinny, so sallow. It was amazing. I do want to go back a second as we continue on with uh, our visual analysis here. But quick question, was Terry pushed or did Terry jump? I think the assumption is that it was by the hands of, of, of the people, but I don't know. Terry exited the window and landed abruptly on the sidewalk. <laughs> Who's to say? I'm going to say it obviously wasn't the cast of it, so they weren't there at the time. They were out living their life, gallivanting around. But there's so many people involved. I think somebody had to have pushed her out. I think she was was target number one, perhaps, to uh, give birth to the Satan baby and like wasn't down for it. And then they realized, yeah, that doesn't work when you just like try to ask them. We just have to make them do it. Absolutely. I think that's exactly what they wanted us to assume. Okay, so back to Mia Farrow, Chris. Obviously, Ryan and I agree, but do you have a, a different favorite visual? Oh, yeah. It's not the aesthetic of Mia Farrow, although she is a sight to behold and really just holds this whole thing together. I actually really love the sweeping aerial shots that bookend this movie. Because what it did for me was create, Mac, you alluded to earlier off mic, this sense of world building. It's just, look at this big, vast city and look at all these lives that are happening and taking place here. And then... Let's zoom in on this one couple. The distance there, the so close and yet so far away there, the I can go to the phone booth and try to call for help and then not realize that almost everybody around me is in on it and then the people who aren't in on it think I'm crazy there. I love the approach of this being life in the big city and then being in an apartment instead of a suburban home. I absolutely love that and thought that it was like the perfect backdrop for the story. Yeah, you're not wrong. The way that she's quite isolated in this, and and you're right, everybody that's around her is in on it, does such a lovely thing of like building the suspense of is she crazy or is this actually happening? And I think, you know, it's pretty clear that it is actually happening, but watching her realize it and go through all of it is kind of insane. It actually is a part of one of my favorite scenes, which is where she's like putting her foot down saying, I'm not drinking the drinks anymore. I'm going to my other doctor. I think this is right after the party that she throws. And she's just so strong. She's like, I'm not doing it. I refuse. I know something's going on. Something weird is up here. And then the pain stops. And then as soon as the pain stops, she calms it all down and she starts to back down from, from her intuition and like what she knows to be true. And then she starts going along with it, building the the nursery, going back to the same doctor, all that. And it's just so realistic, I think, the way she goes through this, because no one is going to be moving into an apartment and think, oh, hey, by the way, I 
feel like our neighbors are Satanists. No one's going to say that. You can't just go from I'm chilling, living a regular life to these people are Satanists trying to take my baby. It just doesn't work like that. That's not a direct path. It will never be that way. So it's lovely to see how real her experiences with this are, where she goes back and forth and feels strongly and then gets convinced otherwise or convinces herself otherwise, has people around her talking to her about it. it it's just a very interesting way they build the story and very realistic, especially for the 60s. It's tough for me to pick a, a favorite scene. There's so many great small scenes that are really effective, probably due to Mia Farrow. I mean, being in the phone booth, like what a scene where you don't know if the people outside the phone booth are in on it or not, because you know there's this great conspiracy. You know that something's going on, and these random people who just happen to be right there at the right time when you're trying to make these just really important phone call, and you can't tell if they're part of it or not. Like, so effective. But I actually really love when we're towards the beginning, and we're just sitting with the couple talking to Hutch in the old place, you know, we're, we're, we're not in the new place really yet. Um, we're still grounded. And what I love is that when it, when you realize what's happening there and you, and you start trying to figure out later, like who's in on this, who's involved, because you, I think we as a viewer figure out that the husband is involved. We know that that's a thing. I think when you start factoring in Hutch, you're like, wait, is Hutch in on it? Has Hutch been on this thing the whole time? And now we can't even trust him. You just, it makes you question the motives of everybody that comes into the picture. But that like initial scene where he gives that history, where he gives that backdrop, like you start to use that to question everything later. Cause you're like, man, he knew a lot about what was going on in this, this crazy apartment building. Could he have set them up this whole time? Could he have been talking to the husband the entire time about what was going to happen? But I think it's nice to see them just like getting that little history, that nice little exposition without it feeling like exposition. Yeah. We don't have a lot of like, here, let me tell you this thing. So now you know this. This story isn't told to us, it's shown to us, which is really nice. Again, especially for the 60s. Except for when it is told to us in the books. Except for that little detail. But it was done in a really effective way. You always have to tell the lore. And it didn't feel like an additional burden. Yeah, there's always some element of like, we have to tell you how this witch thing came about. That's always the thing. But the relationships between the people and the growth and the changes, those are shown to us and not told to us. And that's what I value. My favorite scene focuses on a lot of the betrayal that we get. And I think one of the saddest betrayals is not even one that comes from her husband or even comes from these neighbors who we spend so much time with. But she has this doctor in the beginning who, I don't know, I don't know that he seems incompetent, but he doesn't really razzle you or dazzle you. But then at the end of it, it's not like he's really in on it, period. He's not a member of the cult. He's not attempting to take her baby. But he does overlook her cries for help because he thinks she's just crazy. And that was a, a really heartbreaking moment. And obviously, I've seen this movie. I know what happens, but you're just filled with so much hope in this moment of like, I think we, you know, we can get you, we can get you to the hospital. It'll take me about 30 minutes on the phone and really setting up all this hope for her, this belief that she's going to go somewhere and be seen. And I would like to think that that would play differently if uh, this movie were to be remade. I'd like to think that maybe it would try to actually get her to, to a hospital, but for some reason she's intercepted on the way there or something like that. But it was one of those that with everything that happened leading up to that moment, it just took the wind out of my sails. It's interesting. I mean, did you really think that she was going to find some sort of like refuge? Because I didn't at all. I knew that when she sat on that couch, she was done. No. 
it's not that I walked into this thinking she'd find that refuge. But what I am saying is to know that this guy wasn't even in on it, but she's just a crazy pregnant woman. That sucks. You know what I mean? It's not a situation where, because I've seen this before, I think something else is going to happen. But you see the hope for her, and she does such a beautiful job conveying that hope, that sense of safety and comfort, and knowing I went back to my doctor, I did the thing. I have been told what to do, where to go, what to read, what not to read, what to put into my body, and I made a choice for myself. And when she made that choice for herself, it didn't work out. It just got her back to where she was started. Yeah. And she even knows, like, when she calls him, she knows how crazy she sounds. Like, one of my favorite things that she says is, like, there's a plot against me. There's th- there's plot against, plots against people, right? Like, there are plots that come up against people. Well, I'm one of them. There's a plot against me right now. I know that you don't believe what I'm saying, but you know that people are after other people, right? So then, therefore, just because I'm a pregnant woman, I am also now one of the people that people are after. I just enjoy that whole thing. She knows how crazy it all sounds. This movie really is about gaslighting. Oh, and that's why I think it hurts when you get to that moment of hope, because there's like a a decision to be made. Do I trust this person? Do I try to find some outside party to help them? Or do I assume that she doesn't know what she's talking about and call on the people that are literally causing her pain? And it sucks in that moment because I feel like it is a very dated kind of decision. And I don't know that you could play it that way. Like you said, Chris, if you're going to make this in 2022, there would have, there would have to be an attempt. Like these days, I think we just know better. No matter the level of, of experience of the doctor, I think they would have to say, okay, maybe I have to call the police based on these accusations and it wouldn't play out the same. But back then it was just like, well, you don't know what's best for you. Let me call your husband or the doctor that you're accusing of doing bad things to you. Yeah. But again, it's just the times. It's the hysteria of it all. Like this yeah. is how it had to be in this movie. I mean, when you, when you go back to it though, like her husband, that whole scene where she wakes up with scratches and he was like, Oh, it was me. You know, mm-hmm. you were out, right? Like we cringed. My wife and I just immediately right there, like just, Oh, we're just glossing over this. Like it's no big deal. Absolutely disgusting. Just looking into this scene and looking at the betrayal there, there are so many layers of betrayal, but this in this moment when she realizes that A, it's happening, when she wakes up and she says, you, while I was out, he shares, I didn't want to miss baby night. It was kind of fun in a necrophile kind of way. What the fuck? Under what circumstance? Uh, This is again why I'm so glad we are at this point where we can all acknowledge that's wrong. That is not okay. This woman's body belongs to her, and it's not for her husband's taking. But the surprise there, and even just the modest way she says, last night wasn't the only split second, but then she's torn because she's had such a loving relationship up to this point. And it sounds like this had never happened in their marriage before. Yeah, this was the hardest part because at the beginning of this movie, I really enjoy the two of them. I enjoyed getting to know their relationship. I liked Guy. I thought, wow, this is a cute little couple and about to be on like a cute little journey. Of course, you know, I should have known better. Someone always goes crazy and goes off the deep end. This is horror. But I really had a soft spot for them and I really liked them. And that scene is just like, what? And yeah, it's like a physical cringe. And then in the end, he just turns out to be the absolute worst, just like a complete D-bag. And you know, he's just excited about his career. And that's not surprising, but it's it's just so 
repulsive the way he ends up versus how much I enjoyed him in the beginning. But I mean, that's what you gotta be. That's who this story wouldn't have happened if he wasn't who he was. But man, those two characters and the way they interact and start so sweet and so lovely. Nice little new marriage. We're going to have kids. You know, let's move in the house and, and make love on the floor while we don't have any furniture. Like, it's cute. I love it. I was supporting it. I was here for it. Boy, did it go downhill. It took a turn. It wasn't a good turn. And I feel like he deserved more at the end, really. He deserved some kind of punishment. And all he got was, oh, we're going to move to Beverly Hills. We're going to be in the hills. Which is part of why I thought the ending was underwhelming and disappointing for me. I would have loved to see more of that fallout from them and a little bit more accountability. And this movie's long enough. I didn't need 30 more minutes on the ending, but even just the level of back and forth that we get, things feel cold, they feel distant. And you see this really big disconnect between him acknowledging what what would have been the difference you had the pregnancy and then you lost the baby how would you know but now we have the success that's fucking wild insane absolutely mind-blowing but i think that's such a testament to the characters in this movie and obviously we have this really core critical cast we have the cast of it's we have rosemary and guy we even have a couple of the neighbors but even in the extension of that scene when Rosemary gets back to the apartment, the horns and the music are blaring. We have Guy and Dr. Saperstein wait, racing up the stairs. And she gets into the house trying to call for help. And again, she's so close and yet so far away. And you see two random dudes just chilling in her apartment, walking silently in the background. That fucking scared me a little bit. The characters, the scale of the characters in this movie chef's kiss i do love that about the end that it's like this massive party with people that we haven't seen until this point and there's people who like are just arriving to pay their respect and it's it's a nice touch because it you can see then from their point of view that this is a massive celebration there's people from all over the world and she's just like walking in like what the hell are all of you people doing and i think the thing that might have changed the feeling of the end for for both of you perhaps is if we got a little bit of from from the book where Rosemary is like trying, like struggling with the idea of should I kill this child and should I commit suicide? Like thinking about, I, you know, I have to do something about this. And I think it would have added on too much time and it would have kind of come out of nowhere for her, uh, in the movie, but it would have added another, another crisis right there at the end that would have spiced things up a little bit. Yeah. I sure do wish she had stabbed somebody. I feel like we were on this road for long enough. Someone needed to get stabbed, but it's okay. It wasn't authentic to her. I think character wise, uh, you know, like I was saying, I loved Mia and Guy at the beginning. Mia is absolutely incredible in this movie, uh, all the way through. Like I was talking about before, very real, but very believable and very much like trying to do what she thinks is the right thing, even when it's not quite right or someone else is out to get her. The, the, the supporting cast I'm okay with. I wasn't like in love with the couple and the neighbors and all these people. I liked Hutch, but mostly Mia was the home run for me. And she did enough to where I didn't even really care what anybody else was doing or how ridiculous they were being. Cause I already kind of knew they were evil people. So mm. best moment for Mia for me as Rosemary. Shut up. You're in Dubrovnik. I don't hear you. Oh, that was so good. When she just dismisses him altogether. It was great. That was a little bit of that that humor that made me laugh as we got to the conclusion of the film. That moment didn't detract for me. 
But I really would have loved not seeing Rosemary harm herself or the baby. But I would have loved seeing Rosemary try to escape. Like, even if it ended with the baby in her arms and her trying to flee, even if it the, the, it didn't look like the odds were high, but to end it right where it did, it just didn't sit right with me. It didn't feel like enough justice for her character. Is there a Rosemary's baby too? Maybe she tries it in a couple of years. Again, we did talk about that in XX. We had the... Yeah, the, the spiritual sequel, we had the idea of what does life look like for Rosemary and her baby post this movie. There was also a sequel in 1976. Look what's happened to Rosemary's baby. It's like, look who's talking to. Right. Sounds like a terrible movie based on the title. Yeah, so it, it was like a massive bomb and should never have been made. They could have just done a two, like five years later, she's like been hanging around taking care of the baby just to, you know, make everybody think she's cool. And then they just dip out, you know, run to the Amalfi Coast. I don't know. What's interesting is the two different two different strategies here. So Rosemary's baby, we get this really like close to the book. We follow it. We put it on screen successful. Um, there was a sequel to the book called Son of Rosemary. But instead of doing that as a movie, they decided let's just like catch up with the characters from the movie in some really weird kind of clownish way. So they should have stuck with the game plan and just said, all right, you wrote the book. It was great. The first movie was great. Let's just do that again. Major failure on their part. I don't know that I want to see necessarily even more of Rosemary's Baby. It's something where I'm okay with where it stands. I wasn't mad at, you know, what we got in terms of the story for XX. But I think for sure, if anything were to ever get redone or retreated, they'd have to correct what I felt was the worst part of the movie, which was just where it left things in the ending, which I know is sacrilegious. People fucking love the ending in this movie. Mackie said you watched it however many times on YouTube. But as I consider all the things that have so much prominence and impact in this movie, that is least among them. Agreed. I can't imagine why anyone would watch the ending of this movie on YouTube hundreds of times. I'm just telling you, it comes up in like compilations. And so you end up watching it a bunch of times. I believe you. I just don't understand. As much as I wasn't like a super big fan of the ending, it's not the worst part for me. I'm going to use the worst part as an opportunity to make a request for something. Not that I can have it, but... I really wish we had known like a little bit more about the kills that we don't see on screen, but that are talked about. So the old woman from the apartment before, like, I really want to know what happened. I want to know why she moved that thing in front of the door. I want to know why she, you know, what their relationship was, what happened. I'm really curious about Terry and what happened with her and the window. And were there other people there? Was it a setup? I want to know, like, how exactly stuff happened with like Hutch. Like they just kind of like very casually say, Oh, they took one of its uh, clothing items. Like, okay. I don't, I'm not a witch. I don't know what that means. <laughs> like I could put two and two together, but I just wish we knew a little bit more because those things seemed so interesting. And we are experiencing Rosemary's life for so long. What feels like almost every single day of her pregnancy for a minute. And I think at some point we could have had like a little bit of, I don't know, maybe like a side by side, like where she doesn't know what's happening, but we get like a, a side storyline of showing us those things. I don't know. Maybe like we guy is experiencing it and finding out about it or something. I just want to know so much more about that because those were the interesting little things and we didn't, we didn't get it. We just got like weird 
creepy random flashbacks while she was dreaming and or not dreaming. That was what I missed. I really wanted more of the interesting, weird witchy stuff besides just chanting Hail Satan at the end, which was the most on the nose thing of all time. I do wonder how much of that would be satisfied by reading the original novel. Well, I didn't watch the movie to read the novel, okay? I'm sure it's in there. I bet it is, but that's not the point of the movie. And that's not what I'm reviewing. But you are curious. I am curious, but but I'm reviewing the movie, not the existence of a story that is Rosemary's Baby, okay? Well, I'll tell you one existence I was not happy with, and that was Minnie Castavet. That was the worst part of the movie for me. The Castavets, oh man, what a tough couple to have to live near. They would be the worst neighbors. And it all makes sense why they were being the worst neighbors. But at least Roman Cassavet tried to be a little bit charming with them. Minnie, though, was just grating. It was just nails on a chalkboard the entire time. And not just, I'm not just talking about voice. I'm talking about like behavior, the way that you, she would just like forcibly enter your apartment and like involve herself in everything that you're doing. But like at least be a little bit charming, at least make me like you and want you to be around and not just constantly irritate me. I totally agree. I think there were probably two whole sentences that she says in this movie that I didn't hate. And and when I was earlier mentioning kind of like a caricature, she's like a bit of a caricature of a person because people are not like this. No one meets people like this and then ever talks to them again. For sure. She was absolutely grating Mac. I think one of the things that I love as a consequence of how grating she was, was Rosemary's insistence on having a party for people her own age. She said, it's going to be a very special party. You had to be under 60 to get in. I'm like, fuck yeah, Rosemary. There's that charm. It was so funny. Yes. But I, although I slashed it, I absolutely have to call out what I thought was the best part of this movie. And it was the solidarity that we get between Rosemary and her friends. And when a group of women were able to come together in a sea of patriarchal fucking nonsense when they kicked Guy out even though he was insistent on being there with her and they validated her concerns and it was just this moment of clarity for Rosemary and it was finally having sisters to really be there and say this isn't normal you're right you should get a second opinion go back to Dr. Hill look at look for anybody who can help you with this I absolutely loved that, and I wish Rosemary could have experienced more of that. If she had been allowed to, this never would have played out the same way. For sure. You can't be. It's just Mia Farrow has done such an incredible job of endearing me to Rosemary that I wish Rosemary could have gotten better support. And I think that's the mark of a, of a good film with good characters, with good performances all around. Absolutely. I honestly wish Paris could be on this episode just to get to that scene and give us his thoughts and like feel that moment where you're just like, yes, tell her. Yes. Yes. Like be there for her. Tell her all the stuff. Tell her all this stuff is crazy because when you get there, you think like, man, these, these characters, they're us as a viewer. Okay. But also Paris would say something absurd about that scene. You know it. That's true. That's true. With all of these lovely things being said, I'm not particularly eager to watch this again, mostly because God bless two and a half hours almost of my time. It is hard for me to agree to give up more than two hours for a movie and a movie from the 60s nonetheless. I have seen it before and we've seen it now and I might see it again in the future and I'm okay with that. I hope that I don't have to watch it as part of a remake. Like if I have to see this because a remake is coming out, the remake would just have to be so damn good. And I just don't know if anyone can really nail it. I can agree with that sentiment. This is one where I think I'm good for a while. What I would like to do is not have to watch this 
for a very long time. And I hope that when I do watch it again, things are much different. I hope there's less debate. I hope there's more progress. And I hope that this doesn't feel so sad when you see how much still happens. But for now, let's see what other enriching nuggets you have, Mac, in Factor Fiction. Number one, Mia Farrow, like Rosemary, was a good Catholic girl growing up, but no longer identified as such after filming this movie. Mm. I'm going to go fiction. I feel like the movie had nothing to do with her, her life decisions. That's correct. It is a fiction. She kept the faith into adulthood even though she's had disagreements with the church along the way but who hasn't uh, what's the church there for other than to disagree with really That's right. <laughs> number two rosemary told terry Ginofrio, played by angela dorian in the laundry room that she looked like the actress victoria vetri this is in reference to the fact that angela dorian and victoria vetri had a long-standing beef over a shared ex-boyfriend i'll, I'll just go fact here too bad this one's a fiction mm-hmm. angela dorian is Victoria Vetri. She was born Victoria Vetri, but also went by Angela Dorian during her career. You know, I don't know people. I also just love that they like kind of broke a wall here and like used the person playing a character's name. They used her real name. Like that's wild. Yeah, it's weird. Also, I feel like it's weird that Roman is Roman. I don't think it's weird. I think it works in so many levels when we think about Roman Polanski. What a, what a cool anagram, you know? Number three. Rosemary states she went to Vidal Sassoon for her oh my god super cute haircut. Vidal Sassoon in real life did cut Mia Farrow's hair for the movie. It does feel like her hair got cut. This feels like her, like she's meant to have this haircut. And I feel like Vidal Sassoon had its moment, so let's go for it. Yeah, this is a fact. He did indeed cut her hair for the movie. And number four, Yamaha's commercial in the movie was real product placement. They repaid Polanski by giving him and John Cassavetes free scooters. They race him around New York City with Mia Farrow riding in the back. You know, I have a personal beef with Yamaha that I could never explain to anyone and probably has no basis in reality. So I'm going to say fact because I feel like they do something like this. Yeah, it's a fact. Beef it up. One day I should explain my beef, but it'd be a long convoluted story of nonsense. And that's been Factor Fiction. Well, there you have it, folks. Rosemary's Baby has earned a universal slash, and we've had a lot to talk about here, but the conversation doesn't end here by any means. We are just three on a show of typically five, and there are so many of you out there who have very passionate feelings about this movie, so where do you stand? Did you like it? Or do you side with Ryan and I in disapproving of the ending? Have you seen it as many times on YouTube as Mac has? Let us know. You can join in on the conversation for free by hanging out with us in our Discord. You can click the link in our show notes to sign up. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, consider becoming one of our patrons. Visit patreon.com slash hacker slash to enjoy more of the show with early access, extended episodes, bonus content, and live shows. We'll see you next time, folks. And remember, there are no witches. Not really. Adios. Adios.